Before we uh, continue our worship to the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come uh, to confess before you. Teach us in your word that is right and good for us. We ask this morning that you would hear our hearts, that you would calm our minds and um, steady our souls, knowing that we live in this struggle, we live in this um, battle of sin, that uh, as we are hidden in Christ, our sin is still in front to you. And we ask that you would um, give us strength to fight hard together against sin and a heart that is um, uh, enlightened by your spirit through your word to know that uh, our intimacy with you is sweet and precious and yet our sin can, can break some of that fellowship. So there is a lifestyle, a, a hunger, a longing, a, an act of worship that uh, comprises a part of confession. We may know you more intimately that our hearts may be ever laid before you for purifying, uh, for the purifying reality of, of the ongoing sanctification of who we are corporately together, personally and corporately. So here are our hearts this morning. Search our hearts that we may know you more fully and that uh, we may worship you well. And that in that the reality of that worship, our fellowship will be ever more sweet and pleasing to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we um, come to chapter two of the book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The title of this morning's message is Our Former Selves. So if you will, look there with me, and uh, we'll read through the first three verses of chapter 2. And um, at first glance, they're a little gloomy, but there's a purpose here, okay? So let's look at them together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. <clears throat> now, that has some gloomy language in there, but for us, there's also this glorious truth that it says there in verse 3, among them we too formerly lived. So in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths there in, in a prayer and a thanksgiving to bring to light and to, and to raise forward and to present to all Christians throughout all generations till Christ returns the riches of who we are in Christ, the riches of God's, uh, of, of God's uh, uh, grace that have been lavished upon us in Christ, that belongs to us who are in Christ. And so now as the apostle uh, transitions to chapter 2, 
He moves from this thanksgiving and this prayer uh, for us to understand, to be to be used by us to understand who we are in Christ. He transitions slightly to now the power of God at work in salvation that displays uh, the universal peace and unity within the church. So because of the riches of God's grace and who we are in Christ, there then becomes this relationship that, that flows down vertically from God to man that spreads out horizontally from man to man. And so chapter two, he's going to talk about the unity within the church, the universal church. But of course, that's uh, that's kind of fleshed out and, and on display in, in the local gathering of the body of Christ all over the world in local churches. But in Christ, salvation is open to all. That's his point. That's how he begins here. And so that's shown in this most beautiful picture that he's going to talk about in chapter two. And that's the wall of separation that's been, that, that's been torn down between Jews and Gentiles. So that's everybody, right? Biblically speaking, when we talk about the context of Jews and Gentiles, that means Every person on the planet, every ethnicity, every region of the world where there are Christians from every type, shape, color, ethnicity, uh, environment, background, social status, whatever, where there are Christians gathered, they are united. Out of all kinds of diversity, there is this united reality that, that, that displays itself in love, a love that is first displayed to us from God loving us, and then that is on display in our love for one another. So chapter 2, Paul's going to transition to that reality, the unity of the body of Christ that displays the love of God lavished upon us in Christ. So that's the poignant, that's the most poignant way that it's shown that this hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. Christ has transcended that barrier, and thus the point being there, Christ transcending that barrier of human uh, uh, hostility. Christ transcends all barriers of human hostility. In other words, there is no social status. There is no economic status. There is no uh, a racial diversity that divides the body of Christ. That's the beauty of the body. All the things that divide culturally and various cultures around the world have no place of division within the body of Christ. That's the power of God in salvation. That's the great display of God in salvation. The magnitude of God's grace is powerfully displayed in this establishment of peace between himself and man. Children of wrath become sons and daughters of God. And then there is a peace from man to man because of that peace that is brought about from God to man. So the love of God has the power to save both Jew and Gentile and weld them together in unity. Now, Paul's going to go on about that in quite a bit of detail in chapter two, but it begins in a very unique and interesting way. Paul begins to describe this power of God and salvation by pointing to the total depravity of man from which he redeemed us. 
So the big picture in the chapter is going to be our unity, the unity of the body of Christ that displays the glory of God and the power of salvation. But he starts with our depravity, um, who we were, if you will, before we were redeemed in Christ. Now, why do you think that is? Because that seems a little counterintuitive up front, does it not? He's just going to go on and on about the depths of our depravity, who we were before Christ broke into our lives, our deadness in sin. And so for us, particularly, you know, in kind of the, 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 the ebb of our culture right now, you just don't dwell on the negative. You know, that it was just, it's all about the coping mechanisms, right? And we have to put the negative notions away. We just pretend they don't exist. God is absolutely counter to that. Everything's on the table. Everything's laid out and open. And it's not coping for us. Christians don't cope. Christians reside in Christ victoriously, gloriously, powerfully as his children, displaying his his glory and carrying his gospel uh, to a lost and fallen world. So there's not a coping aspect for us here. So we don't need to hide from the reality of who we were. Actually, it's just the contrary. God brings this to us to remind us of who we are. Why? so that we would rejoice in and magnify and savor and glorify the reality of God's power and salvation from bringing us from spiritual death before his holy name into spiritual life. So he takes us right back to the depths of who we were so that we may magnify his name all the more for what he has done on our behalf. You get it? So that's where Paul's going here as he ties in that uh, love of God for us that then flows out and is on display for our love for one another bound in Christ, which is the, 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 the big thrust of chapter two. He starts with our death and sin before him, born sinners, hopeless, powerless in and of ourselves to do anything about it. He brings us there to remind us of the great power of his salvation. So let's look there in verse one. First, I want you to see that we were dead. So it is good. So I'm telling you, I'm encouraging you, church. It is good to go back and review who we were. That's exactly where God takes us this morning in our text. We were dead. And it's okay. We don't need, uh, uh, we don't need to, be, to be coddled. We don't need... Uh, to have coping mechanisms brought about for us. We need to know who we are in Christ. He has settled all those things. You and I were dead. Verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So being reminded of the darkness of sin and death in which we formerly walked actually magnifies the infinite mercy, love, and grace of God who brought us into his glorious life. That's exactly what's going on here. This reality, when you think about that, we were dead, that magnifies God. 
He brought us from such depths. His mercy, his love, his grace has been lavished on us and that he brought us into his glorious lights from spiritual death, not from some halfway house. So we're sort of, you know, kind of uh, on the path ourselves. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Hostile fully to God. That doesn't mean we weren't religious. A number of us in here were probably religious at some point before God broke into our lives. That's not what's being said. Because we can be religious and still dead in our trespasses and sin. That's just a sugarcoating outward uh, big old mess. We were dead. And God broke into our lives and saved us. William Henderson, again, uh, says this concerning our deadness and how good it is for God to remind us of this reality. The more men learn to see uh, the dimensions of their uh, utter lost condition, the more they will also, by God's grace, appreciate their marvelous deliverance. And that's the exact point. That's what's going on here in these first two days. exactly what God is doing here for the believer. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, our resurrection from sin is a demonstration of God's power. We were spiritually dead to God with no capacity to respond. That's what we have to understand. And we thought, some of us thought, and some of us may have some notions there, that we, you know, we had some kind of religious element about us, and somehow that, that brought us some way uh, to this point where we are. That's a means that you can look back in your life and kind of track, but it has nothing to do with you. All that time, you're dead until Christ breaks into your life and brings you from spiritual death to spiritual life. You remain dead. It doesn't matter how religious you were or anything else or how intelligent or how wise or how cunning or how gifted or how talented or how rich or how poor. It doesn't matter or how needy. It doesn't matter. You were dead, spiritually speaking, and God broke into your life and delivered you. He did so with his great power. We had no capacity in and of ourselves to respond. Ephesians 4.18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. That's all of us in this room. We once sit in that position right there that's described in Ephesians 4. We'll get there someday and looking back and say, oh, yeah, that's it. That's us. That defines us outside of Christ. So what verse 1 does is indicates the gravity of our lostness before Jesus, before he made us alive. And so if that's true, then here's the encouragement for all of us, for those who are outside of faith. This is, this is a call to repent and believe on Christ. If you're here and you're outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, here's the call. When we get to this, here's the call to repent and believe on Christ. Our losses before Jesus made us alive. We cannot make ourselves right before God. It must be Christ. Here's the gospel call. Repent and believe on Christ. Believe the truth. Hear the truth and repent and believe. So here Paul goes on and he defines our deadness and sin. Why? To emphasize the resurrection power of Christ who raised us from our deadness of unbelief. That's exactly what's transpired. 
Before Christ breaks into your life, you are in the deadness of unbelief, whether you're religious or not. Whatever capacity of religious uh, uh, matter that exists in your life, there's still deadness. You're dead to God until he raises you from that deadness of unbelief. And all of us, here we go, all of us once lived in this deadness of unbelief. That's called total depravity. When we hear that terminology, that, that theological terminology, that's what it's speaking of there. When we think about total depravity, that's the deadness of unbelief. So this is how God uh, assesses us. This is when we look at here, this is God's assessment of who we were. We were totally dead to him. Spiritually unresponsive. No capacity to respond within ourselves. Now, that's who we were before Christ broke into our lives. Now, if Christ has never broken into your lives, that's who you are. That's a picture of who you are. Outside of Christ, this is who we are as fallen, as part of fallen humanity. Now, in Christ, this is who we were. So we were born sinners, and we function as sinners, right? And what does that mean? It means we missed the mark, right? We missed the mark of God's glory. That's what the scripture says to us. So we were born in sin. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We're born sinners, and we live that out. We function as those who were born in sin. And our lives miss the mark. What is the mark? The mark is the glory of God. That's what we miss. Because mankind is capable of doing, in our deadness of sin, we're still capable of doing good things, right? Now, that depends on what the standard is. So let's just use the standard of God's uh, moral compass, the law of God, or just kindness to humanity. There are lost people out there that can do good things. And we, would even, we could even take the Bible as a standard and measure it up, and we would just say, well, that was good. That was a kind gesture. That was an honest and noble act. We're capable of that. But what we're not capable of is being in right standing with God. So when we talk about total depravity, we're never saying that mankind is absolutely as bad as we can possibly be every time, all the time, all day long. That's not it. And there's where the deception comes in, right? We're not that bad. We can do good things. We can feel good about ourselves. That's true, but it cannot, that cannot satisfy God's righteous judgment. If we have sinned against him, we're born sinners. We're born in Adam, and we also function as sinners. We, like Adam, sin. So that places a position of being dead to God. We can't change our sinfulness. We can do good things, but we can't erase our sinfulness. Do you see the difference? So when we think of total depravity, it's not as bad as we could possibly be. It's that we missed the mark. The mark is God's glory. That would be for us, maybe we could use, I could use this terminology kind of, to kind of drive it home, sinless perfection. That's God's standard, sinless perfection. We don't make that. We can do good things, but that doesn't bring us to sinless perfection. We've missed the mark. And that leaves us absolutely, because God is, God is completely just, that leaves us absolutely, 100%, totally dead to God. Can't be right. Can't do anything to earn it. 
can't find our way there in and of our own strength. Thus, we have language like this in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard. That's the mark. God's glory. We missed it. So we've deviated from the straight and narrow path. We have capacity of moral good, but we do not have sinless perfection. And our sin offends what? The holiness of God, the very holiness of his character, who he is. Our sin is an offense to his holy name, his holy being. And it provokes his righteous wrath. So our sin is offense to God, to his holiness, and our sins provokes his righteous wrath. Because he is holy, he must have righteous wrath. And in this sense, we are dead to God, and we cannot fix that matter. Not, not, not even Americans. In Americans, we just we fix everything, right? I mean, this, at this stage, we kind of fix it with medication, but that's a whole other story. We fix everything. We're just a can-do fix kind of people, not this. Not this. We can't fix this. We can't fix it. We can't cover it up. We can't get out from under it. We can't deal with it in and of our own strength. It takes a supernatural work of God. It takes the power of God and salvation to fix this. So here's where I'm driving, okay? We can't see our deadness and sin unless God opens our spiritually blind eyes. This must be a work of God. If you're sitting here as a blood-bought believer of Jesus Christ, God brought you from uh, your deadness and sin to his glorious light. And you responded in repentance and faith with everything about you. And, and by the way, you're called to. That's your responsibility. And if you're here, you've done that. But that doesn't happen unless God opens your spiritually blind eyes. God has to do this work. You're responsible. You have a responsibility. And if you're here as a believer, you've done that. You've repented and believed on Christ. Praise God. But God has to open your eyes. You say, well, that's counterintuitive. It is. But it's biblical. It's exactly what has to transpire. God has to open our spiritual blind eyes. I say all that to bring this to an application here that should be basic for us, so let's not miss it. Praise God because he has rescued us in Christ. Amen? Praise him because he has rescued us. He had to open our spiritually blind eyes. And he has done so for even us. Praise him that he has rescued you in Christ. So we're born sinners in Adam. We sin in Adam and we sin with Adam. We are just right there, all wound up in it. That's who we are. That's who we were. We're guilty and dead towards God. Sinful humanity I'm speaking of here, looking back. Addressing that as who we were, sinful humanity is guilty and dead before God. Now, why is the world in such a miserable condition? I mean, we have some folks, you know, are kind of looking on the bright side of things. I don't want to be doom and gloom, but uh, let's face it. It's a tough world out there, right? Why? Why is it in such a miserable condition? Why? Look, let me just start with this. Humanity can't fix it. 
And we might have some different thoughts about, you know, how, how frightening and miserable and, and, and difficult it is out there in the great big world. But let me just say this up front. We can't fix it. We can't fix it. Our safe spaces can't fix it. Our medication can't fix it. Our legislation can't fix it. Our education can't fix it. Our indoctrination can't fix it. We can't fix the problems of this world. You know why? Only the power of resurrection can fix the human condition. We're sinners. You want to know why the world is such a tough place? Why it's so miserable out there? Because we're sinners. It's not because we don't have enough programs. It's not because we don't have enough opportunities. It's because we're sinners. We're sinful. And we cannot fix the human condition. But praise God, the resurrection fixes the human condition. Romans 5.17. For if by the transgression of one, that being Adam, death reigned through the one, that being Adam, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ fixes the human condition. So God, by his grace, raised us from our deadness of sin. All humanity is dead in trespasses and sin. There we were, the same boat. Let me say this. There's no excuse. There's no exception. There's no escape outside of being in Christ. That's it. There's no other options here. We either remain dead in sin under the righteous wrath of God, or we are then rescued by the atoning work of Christ on the cross, where there Christ bears the sin that of his people appeasing the righteous wrath of God and imputes his righteousness earned under the law where he took on flesh and walked righteously in this life under God's moral law in perfect obedience and thereby is our representative before God, our substitute, where he makes atonement for us and bears the righteous wrath of God and imputes his righteousness to us. Where God is just and the justifier of those who in Christ. That is the only hope for the human condition. There's no exceptions. There's no alternatives. And here's the great, here's the great visual for us all, okay? We all, we all face this day after day after day. Some of you may not think about it, but it's true. When we look in the mirror, and we confront it day after day after day. We're all going to die. You're going to die. You're going to physically die. We're all going to die. Why is that? Everybody dies. You know why we physically die? Our physical death is a picture. It's a picture. It's a direct result of our spiritual death. We die physically. Because we were born dead in sin in Adam. Physical death is a result of spiritual death. It's a result of the fall of man. It's all around us. The clock is ticking on our physical body. There's a reason for that. Because we were dead in sin. Physical death pictures the reality of our sin, of our being dead in sin before God. Sin brings death. Now, if one remains spiritually dead, 
and dies physically, he or she will die eternally. That will be separation from the presence of God, except for the presence of God and his eternal wrath. But we're all going to die physically. We're either going to die outside of Christ and experience the eternal wrath of God, or we're going to die in Christ and be eternally with God in glory. One or two. We all die physically, and we all meet the reality of our our spiritual death, either redeemed in Christ or remaining in it. Follow me? That's the reality. That's that's the the foundation, the undergirding of us understanding who we are in Christ. This is what God has done for us. Anyone outside of Christ dies spiritually and experiences the righteous wrath of God. We were were in that category. Do you see that? Believer, do you see that? That was us. See what Ephesians is doing here? You see what the Holy Spirit is doing in this book? We got to understand who we are in Christ. God ransomed us out according to his own good glory. We didn't deserve it. That's love. And we're going to get to the love a little bit later. That's love. God loved us and that Christ would come to die for us and redeem us from our spiritual death before a holy God. Redeem us from his righteous wrath. Oh, that's foolish fairy tale talk in our culture, isn't it? This is the sobering God's honest truth before mankind. You got questions about that? Let's start with you're going to die. You're going to die and you're going to face your maker. In Christ or outside of Christ. And you take that and you find that sobering in every context and every part of this world because it's true. It's the biblical truth. can't fix it only God can fix it and he has in Christ so we can't fix the sin the being dead and sin problem if you will now why can't we fix it let's just maybe address that a little bit but I want to I want to be clear here we can't fix it and here's why because we're dead in sin okay I can't tell you anything yet I don't there's nowhere else to go you're dead in sin outside of Christ. Why can't we fix it? Because the, the world is constantly, constantly at edge trying to fix this problem, not identifying it correctly, not labeling it correctly, not giving correct biblical language to it, but trying to fix it nonetheless. At wit's end, trying to fix this. Let me say to you, as with the, the, all the tenderness in my heart before God is a role I'm in here. You, I, no one can fix this. We're sinners. We can't fix it. That's the reason we can't fix it, because we're sinners. Only God can raise the spiritually dead. Now, for us, this should really ring a bell, though. This should stir our evangelism. Now, if we sit here and we nod to this, yes, that's right. The world is busy uh, pulling, it, pulling its proverbial hair out, trying to fix this sin debt dead before God problem. And we can't because we're sinners. Only God can fix it. Now, for us, for us that are in Christ right there, this should move our evangelism. Mm-hmm. Should move it. Mm-hmm. My goodness, what are we doing? God has called us. Clearly, to go to fallen man and proclaim his glorious gospel. For they will meet their maker in Christ or outside of Christ. 
This should stir our evangelism. Now, we were dead and we were also deceived. At least I tarry here. Let me go to verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Wow, well, that's a mouthful. Okay, what do we do with that? Um, let me just try to interject here that, that we, were, we were at home in this environment, that being the course of this world, the course of this fallen world, the, the flow of this fallen, oh, this fallen world. If, if we were to think of it as uh, we're out here on the Yadkin, uh, and if, they, if that could be just something, something that I can, I don't want to mess up your, your pleasant uh, visual of the Yadkin, but uh, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me for a moment, if we were thinking of, of the Yadkin as the course of this world and, and we're just in our canoe and we're just, we're just going with flood. Now we may be religious. We may, we have the capacity to do things, but in the reality of God's creation, we're, we're on the proverbial yadkin of sin. That's a bad illustration. Uh, and, and we're just floating. Just going. Going with the flow, if you will. That, that, that's the picture here, okay? We're in harmony with this spiritual age. And you say, no. No, I have religious tendencies. I have, I have, more, I have moral values. No. Yes. All of that matters not. That's notions that you've conjured about yourself that are false in your fallen nature. You're fooling yourself. You were fooling yourself. Because you're going with the flood. If this, if this is who we were, we were going with the flow. If this is who you are, you're going with the flow. The flow of the course of this falling world in harmony with the spirit of this age. We were comfortably going with the flow, going with the stream of sin. Religious, possibly. Non-religious, possibly. But happy in our sin. Well, no. Couldn't be happy in my sin. Yes, you could. You just found ways to justify it. To marginalize it. To excuse it. To decorate it. To falsely repent of it and make yourself feel better was no repentance at all. You were happy in it because you're dead in sin. God must open your spiritually blind eyes. I'm saying this to build this up for us to understand what God has done in our life. We have to know who we were. To understand, to be part, part of the piece of understanding who we are in Christ. See? Flowing down the gadkin of sin and a complete harmony of the fallen world. I've, I've, I've painted it, so I'm just going with it now. You're flowing down it. Total depravity. Totally deceived by the prince of the power of the air. Now, that's Satan. That's language for Satan, our great adversary. He's the prince of the power of the air here in this text. Now, he's under God's overrule, God's province, God's province. He's under that. So if you will, Satan and his legions are, are operating on this uh, global ball and its surroundings. 
to the best of my understanding, you know, it's, it's uh, not the easiest language in the world there, but here, this language of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. We'll get to that. But that's Satan and his legions that, uh, that God has freely, uh, for a time, allowed to reign here in this realm. Now, that could not include the realm of, of the heaven of glory where the redeemed resides, so not that. Somewhere in the globe and in the atmosphere. It's the best I can do here. But you understand these spiritual beings at work in opposition to your soul in a, in a spiritual realm of this reality. First Peter 5.8 uses this language in relation to this kind of language that we hear here in Ephesians. We can tie that to such language as First Peter 5.8 and this, then it makes sense. Be, uh, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, seeking someone to devour. So there's a, there's a spiritual being, but there's a presence here. An active presence. And so there's a deception of our great adversary as we flow along with the course of this fallen world. And are we fallen in Adam? Yes. Are we dead in our trespass and sin? Yes, that's true. So are we dead already? Yes. Are we dead to God spiritually? Yes. Is our great, what's our great adversary doing? Trying to maximize every capacity of that deadness. That's what he's doing. So everything that's lost and wicked and expressed in our, in our lives when we were dead in sin, he's trying to expose and magnify and, and, and twist and contort and, and, uh, and expound to the nth degree of his capacity while he has time. Is that working? That's what he's doing. So it's a spiritual world, and we can't see, we can't fully see and manifest the reality in our minds of what's being manifest in terms of darkness and deadness. And that's what the great enemy is doing, manifesting that darkness and deadness. So Satan is allowed to reign for a period of time under God's authority. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. So there's a time on this. Nonetheless, that's the reality of uh, what's going on in our lives, or what was going on in our lives when we were dead in our trespassing and sin. What's going on in the lives of all those now who are dead in their trespasses and sin. So there's a great adversary out there seeking to do as much damage as possible. And there is a limit. And then he would cut off. So we were deceived by our great enemy and his legions in this process. And we were disobedient. Can you be deceived and be disobedient at the same time? Yes. And we were. This is the last part of verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this word, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's everyone who is now outside of Christ. And that was you when you were outside of Christ. You were a son or daughter of disobedience. That's who you were. It's fallen mankind. It's speaking of the fall, the reality of the fallen of mankind. That's everybody. It's everybody who is 
that, that we are born in Adam. We are fallen and we are disobedient because of that fall. We do what we do because we're disobedient. All right. So, so it's, it's not, I mean, do, do, our, do our social circumstances uh, have, have an effect that, that, that's, that's a capacity uh, 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 that where we can manifest our disobedience? Yes. Is that the cause of our disobedience? No. Is our background, our, our family history, our experience of life, none of this is the cause of our disobedience. We were disobedient because we're born in Adam, because we're sinners. Can those realities uh, uh, be a, a playground for our enemy to try to encourage manifestation of our disobedience? Sure. But none of it is the cause. The cause of our disobedience is that we were born in Adam, spiritually dead to God. We're sons and daughters of disobedience by birth. So we're all cut from the same cloth. Amen. Boy, that, look at that go a long way right there. Just, we just get that. We're all cut from the same cloth. It kind of tears away the self-righteousness, doesn't it? We're cut from the same cloth. So we come forth from disobedience. It's just, a, like, just as, as we're birthed from disobedience. Just as, a, just as a mother births her child from her womb. In the same way, spiritually speaking, that is the womb from which we are birthed. We are birthed from disobedience. We come into this world disobedience. Because our spiritual birth is the birth of disobedience. So we are just like just like the, uh, a human baby is 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 has the has the makeup the DNA makeup of of his or her parents that was that was that, that baby was birthed into that reality. We are birthed into disobedience. It's who we are, and this disobedience manifests in unbelief and rebellion against God's commands. And we can find all kinds of fancy ways to uh, to, to doctor that up. And all kinds of religious speak, but that's exactly what happens. We're born in disobedience, and it manifests itself in our unbelief and rebellion towards God's commandments. And Satan continuously works to try to do all he can to make this as bad as it can possibly be in our lives. So that said, parents, let me just encourage you right here for a moment. Uh, stay the course, do the work, pray, uh, set the example, encourage your kids, catechize your kids, uh, teach them the word. But know this, do this with a happy heart. Do this in obedience to God. Do this in faith. You cannot bring your child from spiritual death to spiritual life. You can't. And it's good to know. You need to know that. You need to just lift that weight off your shoulder and praise God for his glorious grace because you can't. God can't. God can. Only God can do that work. Parents, be encouraged there. Don't do that to yourself. You cannot save them. You have to know God can save them. And you have to know the God who can save them. That's what Ephesians is after right here for us. Knowing who we are in Christ. Knowing who we are. Well, we're dead. We're deceived. For sure. We're disobedient. We're also debauched. Look at verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires 
of the flesh and of the mind. Wow. It just gets worse, does it? That's the glory. God saved us out of this. God can save you out of this. Okay. Mankind is distorted by sin, body and mind. We are tainted by sin. So what is meant here by flesh? Well, it's our human condition. So flesh means uh, who we are, our spiritual deadness before God. Our, our flesh here in this context is our human condition. We're fallen. It's our corrupt human nature. So I'm going to go uh, uh, to William Henderson here again and, and quote him on flesh. It's anything apart from Christ on which one bases his hope for happiness and salvation. It's a pretty good definition. So it's, it's anything that we hang our hat on for happiness, for hope, for salvation, that's outside of Christ. That's, that's done in our flesh. That's done in our human condition, our corrupt human nature. It's an unrighteous craving that places anything as a substitute for Christ. And it manifests itself in all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of sexual indulgence, and all kinds of twisted uh, thoughts of the mind, and all kinds of heinous acts of the body. But also, so it's just outrageous acts of sin, but also... It can be respectable forms of self-righteousness. Amen? That we have to know. Now, who's pinning this? Of course, the Holy Spirit, yes. But who's the author that the Holy Spirit is bearing along? Where did Paul fit in this? You know, we've got to think about this. What does Paul say about himself? Looking back in Christ, what does he say about himself as a Pharisee? I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law of Moses, Blameless, according to the bulky external law, I was blameless. According to the external acts, according to the good acts of a sinful man, can sinful man do good things? I can do them to the T. See, that's the other end. There's outrageous acts of sin that we can kind of yeah, I see that. We can kind of call out. But here's the other side. There's two sides of that same coin. There's righteous, respectable uh, respectable acts. Or I, let me back up. Not righteous, but respectable acts of self-righteousness. You see the mind there? We're depraved. We can't be made right with God and of ourselves. We can't get there from here. Self-righteousness. Can look self-righteousness look good on the outside, can look really good on the outside, but in underneath there's death, spiritual death before God. Both are true. You can be lost as a ball in high weeds, lost in your good deeds, lost as you can be in your good deeds. It's the reality of being spiritually dead, where dead men walk. And sometimes it's cloaked in external goodness. At its core, it's just self-righteousness of sin. 
Now, Paul includes himself here. He sees that because he, he knows that's him. Among them, we too walk. So he just had himself right there because Paul has nailed himself right here. There's no righteousness of man. There's none. As to legal righteousness, blameless. Gentiles, overtly immoral. Jews, self-righteous. See, Paul drew himself in the circle because we don't belong there. They're self-righteous. The Jews particularly are self-righteous in trusting their obedience of the law. Now, again, you can insert anyone's given situation, but the sin of self-righteousness is still a reality of sin. Dead in trespasses and sin. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's a memory verse waiting to happen, word of grace, right there. We remind ourselves of this and remind ourselves of the truth of this to carry in our evangelism to the world. This is true of fallen man. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in my human nature, in my human condition, born in Adam, living out the reality of a sinner. And that brings us to the reality of the fact we were not only the box, but we were destitute. There, I want you to see the last part of verse 3. Among them who we, uh, we too all formerly walked in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were destitute. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, we were enslaved and condemned. Fallen man, outside the redeeming grace of Christ, is destined to suffer the just judgment of God on sin. Okay? That's the reality. That's God's settled indignation. God's attitude towards fallen man in Adam is a righteous indignation of righteous judgment. That's God's attitude towards fallen men in Adam. We are sinful before a holy God. We, are, we have offended his holy name. And God is infinitely, perfectly, eternally just. And for his name's sake, he must punish sin. Sin belongs to sinners. He must punish sinners. He is righteous. Therefore, he must judge sin. That is a settled indignation of a holy God towards fallen man. We must know this to evangelize well. We must know this to understand who we are in Christ. We must understand the holiness of God to know who we are in Christ. Now, his attitude towards fallen man and Adam who refuses to accept the gospel leading to salvation in Christ is that he will judge them fully in his righteousness. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, uh, man's, uh, man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Why do we all sin? Because we're sinners. All sin. We are sinners. So the wrath of God is the righteous action of God towards evil. That's what the wrath of God is. It's God's righteousness on display towards evil. God's wrath is an act of holiness, okay? It's an act of his holiness. 
to all that oppose his holiness. And that's Alistair Biggs there. And that's a great quote. Let me just give you that again. Alistair Biggs. God's wrath is an act of holiness to all that is opposed to holiness. That's a good nutshell right there. Just hang on. That. They'll come to you at lunch. It's exactly what's going on. So God's wrath is his settled action towards evil in the world. It's, it's, it's the, the reality of who God is in response to the fallen world. God must judge. God is opposed to evil because he loves with infinitely holy love. That's why he's opposed to evil. His justice indicates the extent of his love. So there's not, God's not indifferent here. God's completely engaged. But because God loves, he is also just. If God were not just, he would not love. So let's, let's go there with that, okay? If God were not just, he would not love. God must be just. If God is to be loved, if God is to be loving. So by nature, apart from regenerating grace, man is lost, and his lost condition is terrible. So one <clears throat> sin breeds another, right? And it just manifests on and on and on. It's a manifestation of evil. John 336, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, abides on him because we just are in perpetual state of sin, manifesting one evil act after another. So what are we to do here? Well, by application, and we try when we bring this this totality of this together. The wonder of the gospel is expressed on the cross. So when we think about who we were and how this comes together and how we live out our Christian life in light of understanding who we are in Christ and how God brings this reminder of who we were to help us understand who we are in Christ. An application point for us can be to begin to, to, to take that and marvel at the gospel, the wonder of the gospel expressed in the cross. The gospel is glorious in that what God would redeem a fallen people, but how? This is how we understand who we are in Christ. We see the magnitude of God. How? It's the cross. So God placed our deserved punishment on Christ in order that we would benefit from his love. So Jesus bore Wrath that belonged to us so that he would get praise and that we would get redemption. So here, here we try to put these two together. Now, I want you to see this because we think about, man, God loved me so much that he would die for me. Went to the cross and he died for me. What do you mean he loved you? Why do you have to die? You have to die because he loved you? What does that love mean? Why do you have to die for you? Because you're a sinner, right? God's love is manifest to us and understood to us rightly 
and fully. And we understand that it's in direct correlation to his justice. God loved you because he loves his holiness. He is just. If he is just, he must punish sin. And because he must punish sin, he therefore is that loving to you that the Father would send his Son to bear the righteous wrath of the Father in your place. Now that's love. If you don't understand that God is holy and must judge sin, that God is perfectly just, you can't understand the kind of love God has for you. You won't understand it rightly. That's why he had to die for you. That's why Christ came to die for you, because you're a sinner. And God must, now you understand, you begin to understand who you are in Christ. And I'll, I'll finish with this. Now we understand that we benefit from his love as he bore God's wrath in our place. So we're not praising him really as we should until we get this. We won't. We have to understand his righteous wrath to rightly praise him. We can understand his love if we don't understand his right. And I also say this in a practical sense. Until we get this, we will not be broken for the lost as we should be. We won't. We'll find other stuff to do. We'll find other things to think about. We'll find other things, other ways to occupy our time. We will not be broken for the lost as we should. And we'll just justify our avoiding evangelism. We'll justify it. We see who we are in Christ. Then we'll see what Christ has done for us, how God has loved us. We'll be moved to evangelism. So we must see all of mankind as dead men walking. The wrath of God must remind us of the love of God. We just might see our evangelism is connected to the wrath of God. That's an important application for us. I'm going to close there. We're going to come to the table today. And we'll close out here. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the glorious hope of Christ. We thank you for your uh, sovereign grace that you have lavished upon your people. We thank you for the unity, the bond of peace, the indwelling spirit that resides within your people. We ask that you will bless our going out and are coming in, that we might walk in righteousness together for your glory. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.